pray. Father, we do look forward to the time, that time when pilgrim days will end and your hand will guide us to heaven. For today, please open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Even as we consider now the life you have given us and the life we look forward to in your great plan of redemption. Teach us and grow us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Eight to ten-year-olds, in a way, I'm sorry you're here, but we are glad you're here. I have a distant memory of being eight to ten. You will make it through. Well, it is our normal pattern on Sunday mornings to zero in on a passage of Scripture as we go through an entire book of the Bible. So many benefits to that, right? Sometimes it can be good to zoom out for a big picture view, trace the various themes through Scripture. The discipline of biblical theology does that, and we'll do that this morning. So let's look into the Bible's storyline and consider the themes of life and death, physical and spiritual life and death. And for our outline, we'll take the Bible's own structure, the four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or new creation. We'll bring in a lot of verses to guide us, hopefully, into a biblically rich perspective so that we think well of these matters of life and death. So, are you ready? Let's begin at the beginning. Please turn to Genesis chapter 1 and Act 1, creation, where human life begins. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Scripture opens with the creation account and the divine imperative, let there be God speaking into existence the universe. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, bringing into existence things that did not exist. And creation reveals much about the Creator, right? Look around. It's not hard to see. Incredible planning, power, precision, beauty, order. Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation has been called a great theater of God's glory, so clearly points to him. And so, we confess with Christians through the centuries the opening of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Genesis 1, verse 26, we see the apex of God's creation. Look there. Then God said, let us make man in our image, 
our own image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human life begins. Ultimately, we trace our life to God and his life. Now, God has always been, right? If you can imagine a time when there was absolutely nothing, what would there now be? Nothing. God has always been. He has the power of being, has life in himself. God is self-existent. Now, here's your theological word for the day. I know you wanted this. Aseity. Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. From the Latin a, from, and say, self. So, from self. God is the power of being, has life in himself. And he has created human life. Now, what does it mean for us that we are created in his image, his likeness? Much has been written about this. Often you'll find these elements. Personality. We are conscious persons. We relate to other persons. We are relational. Cognition. We can think, reason, put our thoughts together and communicate our thoughts. We have affections. We feel emotion. Creativity. We can put our thoughts together. We can imagine something in our mind and then take the steps to bring it about. So we have art and music, airplanes, all sorts of creative endeavors. And then morality. We all have a moral sense, don't we? We make moral judgments and we desire justice. That comes from our moral just creator. And volition. We make decisions all the time, right? You're deciding right now what to think of this message. Some of you are deciding to think about something else. Of course, I've never done that. And so we are created to image God, reflect Him in this world. Might help all of us to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? How well are we reflecting God's image? The image of God relates to our purpose. Why are we here? What are we to do? Look at verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. That's a good thing. And have dominion over, as in be stewards of, the earth. As we do that, we bring glory to our Creator. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is familiar to most of us. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And Ecclesiastes concludes with this, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We are to reflect God's image, serving as His vice regents in this world, taking care of His creation. And as image bearers, we have 
inherent value. Human life is precious, amen? Now, Christopher Watkin makes the excellent point that creation, including our very life, is gratuitous. It's a gracious thing. God did not have to create us, right? He had no need to do that, yet here we are. Acts 17.25 says, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is by nature gracious. It's a gift that you and I exist. Have you thought about that? Are you thankful for the life God has given you? Right response of all of creation is praise and worship to our Creator, right? As the last verse in the psalm says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So, early in Genesis, there we are. Man and woman, rightly related to God and to each other and to the rest of creation. This is great, right? People are flourishing, physically and spiritually alive. Life is good. Actually, it's very good. And wouldn't it be nice if that was the end of the story? We could all just, we could stop right there, right? Everybody go home, enjoy your life as you live forever, enjoy your relationships, enjoy creation, carry on your dominion work. But we know that the story takes a dramatic turn, doesn't it? That takes us to Act 2, the fall into sin and death. Genesis chapter 3 tells of a very dark day. Satan shows up, tempts Eve. Did God actually say? Both Eve and Adam transgress or step over the boundary, the clear command of God. Succumbing to the temptation, you can be like God or try, the first instance of confusing creation and creator will not be the last time that happens. Sin enters the world. Then starting at verse 14 of Genesis 3, God pronounces judgment, a curse on all of creation. And for humanity, that includes physical and spiritual death. Physical death is not Immediate, right? Happens over time. We see that in Genesis 5 as Adam dies, setting the pattern. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah die, and on and on, century after century, right up to all of us here today. Like Pastor Andrew has said, there are no 137 year olds. This is our trajectory. It is where we're going, even if we don't currently feel it. I see this in my work. I see this up close in my work in an extended care facility. Sometimes our rehab team is asked to work with someone who has been really declining, maybe someone in their 80s or 90s, families having a hard time taking care of them. They've come into our facility and we're called to enter into the picture. Often, it's like there's a needle that could go one way or the other. 
Maybe they can make gains with our help, get to a higher level of function, get home safely. That's great. Other times, their decline will continue no matter what we do. It becomes clear over time that it's time for hospice. That's rather humbling for us. We're not in charge of that. Genesis 3.19 says of man, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Of course, we know that some of us will not make it to our 80s or 90s, right? The truth is we do not know when we will die. Like James says, we really don't know what tomorrow will bring. Our life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I've gotten used to saying, you know, we've all got an appointment. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. You want to be ready for your appointment, right? Are you ready? Our culture does not do well with the reality of death, does it? Avoids it, denies it. We've got all kinds of things that will make us younger, but nobody escapes death. Enoch and Elijah were very rare exceptions. And when someone we are close to dies, we mourn and we rightly grieve. And there's a time for that type of lament. Consider Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, John 11, remember? Deeply moved in his spirit, the word there suggests to the point of a deep anger. He is indignant, greatly troubled. Most commentators agree there is more than missing his friend or the grief of Lazarus' friends and family to explain his response. He's responding to this reality of human death. It was not part of the very good creation. There is something deeply tragic, deeply wrong with death. We all have that sense, don't we? Death needs to be brought to an end, amen? One of our best commentaries on human death is found in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, where the Apostle Paul writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, our representative head, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Think about that. The many were made sinners. Beyond physical death, a kind of spiritual death entered the world with the fall. This involves a deep corruption in us, an enmity toward God, our creator. In Ephesians 2, fallen humanity is described as dead in trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, as in under the just wrath of God for sin. That's a horrible place to be, right? Dead means unresponsive. So naturally, apart from the grace of God, we are dead to God. 
1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, echoing the 1646 Westminster Confession, summarizes it this way, quote, Our first parents, by this sin, Genesis 3, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body, end quote. This is the doctrine called total depravity. Total as in all parts of us, our total person, mind, will, affections, body. The Canons of Dort, written in the city of Dortrecht, Holland, 1618 to 19, describes it this way. Man brought upon himself spiritual blindness, terrible darkness, distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, hardness in his heart and will, impurity in his emotions. Man brought forth children of the same nature. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants except for Christ alone. All people are conceived in sin, inclined to evil. They are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even dispose themselves to such reform. End quote. This is fallen humanity. One word to describe this condition, lost. Here's Romans chapter 1 with a downward trajectory into sin. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, have God in their thinking, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, and malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Wow. You know, I can remember reading this years ago and thinking, well, I'm not this bad. I mean, this list, these people, these are really bad people, right? But then Jesus, teaching about God's moral standard in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, presses the issue of sin deeply inward to the heart, our very thoughts and inclinations. That's a different story, right? It's not just about outward deeds. Jesus himself describes our fallen condition as a slavery. John 8, 34, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Again, that's a horrible place to be. The Bible speaks of all of creation groaning under the curse. Romans 8, 20 to 23 has this. For the creation was subjected to futility. It is in bondage to corruption. The whole creation has been groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. We know things aren't right. Even in the midst of our very good days, enjoying God's good gifts, we're not right 
all of creation isn't right, and we long for it to be made right. And there's something else you won't hear talked about much in our culture today, the fact that sin incurs guilt. And we are heading for a final judgment, and God is perfectly just. Final verse in Ecclesiastes says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In Acts 17.31, Paul speaking in Athens, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by his righteous standard. So, question, what do you do with your guilt? Romans 2.5 speaks of people storing up wrath, compounding their guilt for sin. Not a good plan. A lot of people are hoping that God's just going to forget about their sin. A lot of people hope that God will grade on a curve. But God is perfectly just, right? How high is his standard? And have any of us lived up to that? On our own, apart from God, we would all have to plead guilty. That is just reality. And so, here in Act 2 of the story, we find some very bad news. Sin has entered into the good creation, bringing physical and spiritual death to humanity, with all of us heading for an ultimate judgment. God help us. Thankfully, this is not the last word in God's word, right? That takes us to Act 3. Redemption out of death and into new life. Now, to redeem is to gain possession of something in exchange for a payment. We've seen that humanity desperately needs to be redeemed or bought out of our fallen condition. In a word, we need salvation, rescue. This is perhaps the major theme of the Scripture. You could summarize the whole Bible as the story of redemption. Praise God. We find predictions of this in the Old Testament, right? All the way back to where? How far back? Somebody said it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Such a key verse. A seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. A redeemer will come. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is sometimes called the proto-evangel, the first gospel. It's good news to answer the very bad news. And this promise is then unfolded across the entire canon of Scripture in a progression of covenants delivered through covenant mediators. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all foreshadowing, pointing to a new covenant with a perfect mediator who will bring salvation and life to humanity. This is Jesus, the Christ. That means anointed one, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. In Luke 19.10, he tells us why 
He took on a human nature and came to live on this earth. It was, he says, to seek and to save the lost. Praise God. Again, this is prophesied throughout the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel 36, initially addressed to Israel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. I'll give you a new inclination. And in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37, the prophet is given a vision of a valley full of dry bones. Do you remember? Those dead remains are brought to life. The Spirit of the Lord, through the Word of the Lord, brings life where there was no life. Again, ex nihilo. And Jeremiah 31, speaking of the new covenant to include Jews and Gentiles, says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will remember their sin no more. They shall all know me. So life, in its truest sense, is about knowing God. Note the particular role of God the Holy Spirit in creating life. John 6, 63, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. And so we confess with Christians around the world this from the Nicene Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see or enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. In Titus 3, Paul calls this regeneration, as in generated again, born again. Ephesians 2 again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We are his workmanship. This is the powerful, creative work of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, he is a new creation. And earlier in that letter, he likens this to the very creation of the universe. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God for this work, amen? Again, the Canons of Dort summarizes this very well. It says that God, through the Spirit, quote, penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. Anybody here relate to being stubborn? This is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures. It is an entirely supernatural work. As a result, 
All those in whom God works in this marvelous way are certainly unfailingly and effectively reborn and do actually believe. Faith is a gift, right? It goes on. This divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties or coerce a reluctant will by force, but spiritually revives, heals, reforms, and in a manner at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. As a result, a ready and sincere obedience of the Spirit now begins to prevail where before the rebellion and resistance of the flesh were completely dominant. It is in this that the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. End quote. This is true freedom, right? God works in us. He makes us free. In Christ, we have a true freedom of the will. Christian, are you thankful for this? You are by no means perfect, right? We all have remaining sin, remaining corruption that God is growing us out of. But sin's power in us has been broken. And so, Christian, you now have a love for God and the things of God. You love His Word. You love His people. Not perfectly, but that's your inclination because of the Spirit's work and you desire to grow and cultivate your spiritual life. That's a process, right? The Bible calls it sanctification, being set apart, set apart from sin, set apart to God. In other words, to be made holy. And God tells us to pursue this. Be holy as I am holy well, that makes sense, right? Because we've been created to reflect his image. This then is to be our trajectory spiritually in this life. Jesus prayed this to the Father for believers, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the Spirit of God uses the word of God to sanctify the people of God. And Jesus continues to intercede for us. Are you thankful that Jesus prays for you? We surely need it, amen? Now, practically, how do we pursue this new life, our sanctification? What do we do? This is where we speak of the ordinary means of grace, the means God uses to grow us this would include the Word of God, preached and taught and read, meditated on, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. These are, in a sense, ordinary things that we do, right? We're doing all of them this morning. But don't underestimate the work that God does through them. God does extraordinary things through these ordinary means. And our new life typically grows gradually over time. Sometimes there are big jumps, right? Typically it's gradually. You might feel like you're going backward 
sometimes. You might feel like you're regressing. But as 1 John 3, 9 says, if you have been born of God, regenerated, God's seed abides in you. Look back a year, five years. The trajectory is into maturity. This is progressive. We see that in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is growing us. That's the path we're on. And it's a path of flourishing, right? Consider the fruitful, blessed man of Psalm 1 who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Rather, his delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord, and he meditates on that, and he prospers, and he flourishes. Or Psalm 23, the Lord, my shepherd, leads me in paths of righteousness and restores my soul, gives me life. Or Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. This path brightens as we go with blessing and life. In John's gospel, Jesus says that whoever believes in him has eternal life, has passed from death to life. And in John 10.10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. Eternal life is more than just life that lasts a long time, right? It's a quality of life. Life as it was meant to be. Jesus defines it in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, it's about knowing God. The more we come to know him, the more we grow, the better we reflect his image. Now, very briefly, I need to mention another kind of death that occurs in this lifetime for Christians. There is a paradox here. When we enter spiritual life, a death happens. Listen for it in these statements from Romans 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We were buried with Christ by baptism into death. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We have died with Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Coming to Christ involves the death of our fallen, sin-dominated self, our old self. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, mortify your remaining sin. Put it to death. Again, that's a lifelong process, right? And so the Bible actually speaks of sanctification as an ongoing war with sin. 
Again, this from the 1689 Baptist Confession, quote, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, end quote. That's the direction, praise God. So we could imagine a graph with two lines moving in opposite directions over time. Our physical life eventually declining, moving downward, but our spiritual life growing and moving upward. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4.16 where Paul writes, we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. So decline physically, renewal spiritually. There's something beautiful in this. You who have walked with God for many years, think of how you have grown, the spiritual life in you. There's a beauty in you. Spiritual life is beautiful. You are a gift to our church for sure. We are blessed to have, think about it, in this room, Christians who have been walking with God and growing, some for many decades. May you continue to be blessed and a blessing. Psalm 92 says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. What a picture. Very old saints are precious. Would you agree? Now we should note that our spiritual life does affect our physical life. We will do better physically as we thrive spiritually. We see this in many places in Scripture. For example, this from Proverbs 3, 7 to 8. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Spiritual vitality does help us physically. That's the way we're made, right? We are body and soul united. Still, the overall trajectory of our physical life in time is downward leading to death. Now, if you, are, if you are coming close to death or close to someone nearing death, for the Christian, there is great comfort. Many of us would testify to seeing a special grace given through that time. Our great shepherd takes care of all his sheep, especially through the experience of death. Let these passages be a comfort to you. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
And this from Psalm 16. It applied to Jesus, but relates to us as well. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. You make known to me the path of life. And Psalm 49, 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Those of you who studied Hosea earlier this year, do you remember God, when speaking of a future restoration, refers to the valley of Achor, a place of trouble and death. He says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope, perhaps in the same way, death, for those united to Jesus Christ by faith, becomes a great door of hope. Now, lastly, in Act 3 of our story, let's look at what happens with us from the time we die physically to the time of the return of Christ and the consummation that he will bring. What happens when we die? Chapter 31 of the London Baptist Confession summarizes the biblical data this way. Quote, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ. Behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and other darkness reserved for the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none, end quote. So this time between death and the final consummation is called the intermediate state. The soul is departed from the body, which goes on to decay for a time. And for Christians, the soul, the soul is wonderfully transformed. As the confession says, made perfect in righteousness to be with Christ. As Paul writes, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We long for this, don't we? And notice there, the souls of those who have died during this intermediate state are waiting what are they waiting for? That brings us to the final great act of the Bible story, Act 4, consummation or new creation. To consummate is to complete, to perfect. Jesus is coming back. Can I get an amen to that? In the opening chapter of Acts, angels tell his followers, men of Galilee, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He's coming back. And with the return of Jesus will come a great resurrection, a great judgment, and a great renewal of all things. First, Jesus spoke of a resurrection of the bodies of all the dead. John 5, 28 to 29, he says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. 
that is Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This was foretold in the Old Testament, including this from Daniel 12. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. Again, note there, two destinations after resurrection. Resurrection hope is found throughout the Bible. Another example, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The earth will give birth to the dead. Can you imagine? What a picture. The Bible at several points speaks of two great ages, this age and the age to come. In Luke 20, Jesus spoke of sons of the resurrection in the age to come. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 links this with the second coming of Jesus. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What a welcome that will be. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's our great hope, right? We were not created to be disembodied souls. When resurrection happens, we who belong to Christ will be wonderfully embodied. And believers still alive at Christ's return will be wonderfully changed. Our bodies will still be our bodies, but they will be very different. No decay, no illness, dare I say, no virus. The word upgrade does not do justice to what will happen on that day. Romans 6, 5 says, We shall certainly be united with him, Christ, in a resurrection like his. Philippians 3 tells us that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Again, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But this is a day closer than it was yesterday. Remember, we saw earlier this year, Andrew taught us from 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps the Bible's main resurrection chapter, that with his resurrection, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's the prototype, the first fruit. We will follow. Paul goes on, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Takes us back to Genesis in a way, right? Except better. We won't sin. And we know it's only through Jesus that we have this resurrection hope. John eleven twenty five. 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. Praise God. And so, in the consummation, we will be brought to fullness of life, spiritual and physical life. This is the terminus, the goal for the people of God. Romans 8, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's where we're going. Again, it's the return of Christ that brings this completion. As 1 John 3 tells us, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And this from Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Then will come to pass what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God's people will be fully sanctified, embodied souls, fully human, fully alive. Now, second, the consummation will bring an ultimate day of judgment. We looked at this earlier. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 links this as well with the return of Christ. It starts this way. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, some to eternal punishment. But the righteous, those counted righteous in Christ, into eternal life. And the book of Revelation, with its apocalyptic imagery, describes a great white throne judgment where books are opened, people's lives are exposed and judged. Remember, there's another book there, the book of life, revealing those who belong to Christ. Those not found in it are cast into eternal judgment, punishment, rightly so, for their sin. Question, are you ready for this judgment? Think about it. Imagine yourself standing before God, accountable for all of your life, all of it. Do you want to do that on your own merit or on the merit of Jesus Christ? I want to say, I'm with him. I'm with him. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. Finally, when Jesus returns, there will be a great renewal of all things. Again, we know that this creation with all of its beauty is fallen, right? We find in it elements of evil and decay. It needs to be renewed. The Bible speaks of a future new heavens and a new earth at several points. We see this in Isaiah, Peter, the revelation to John, and elsewhere. And Jesus gave gave us a preview of this in his life on earth, doing miracles, raising the dead, banishing disease, demonstrating power over nature and evil, basically reversing the curse when he was here, foreshadowing a great renewal when he returns. Jesus refers to this as the regeneration in Matthew 19, 28. 
the entire creation will be born again. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And the creation itself will rejoice at its renewal. Like it says in Isaiah 55, 12, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. No more groaning. John writes this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's covenant language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is life as it was meant to be. Notice there, death shall be no more. Previous chapter, chapter 20, John sees a vision of death itself being thrown into the lake of fire. Think about it. Death, our great last enemy, is heading for an end. It currently reigns over us. That's part of God's plan. But death is not ultimately sovereign over us and its days are numbered. Praise God, death will die. That's where the story's heading. So for now, we continue to have funerals, right? We will do that, but we will not always have funerals. So this is the consummation with a great resurrection, a great judgment, and a regenerated creation filled with the people of God, fully alive, worshiping God as creator and redeemer, others judged eternally in a place called hell. Jesus spoke much about that, even that serving as a testimony to God's justice. This is where history is heading where God is taking it. Have you noticed in recent years the phrase, the right side of history? Have you heard that? Sometimes it's been used by politicians to promote policy clearly on the wrong side of God. Would you like to be on the right side of history? Folks, read the book of Revelation. Everyone who has been bought, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is now on and will continue to be on the right side of history. And so we have this hope. And we share the gospel of Christ with people around us. May God help us to do that. Because Jesus continues to build his church one soul at a time and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And let's sink our roots deep to remain faithful in this fallen world through the life that God gives us. The offer of the gospel, the command of the gospel remains. Trust in Christ. Look to him to save you. 
Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible, verse 17 says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's a gift. And one more quote from Jesus, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Praise God. Say yes to Him. So we have looked at life and death through creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. What God has done and what He will finally bring about. Christian, go out from here today and live. Pursue your sanctification that you would more and more reflect the image of your Creator. Let's follow an example from Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest theologians. When he was 19, he wrote a series of 70 resolutions. Here's number six. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Let's live with all our might in a manner worthy of our calling, bringing glory to our Creator as God gives us the grace to live. Let's close now with a simple prayer and a catechism question. The prayer is very short. It actually closes the entire Bible. It is this. Come, Lord Jesus. And many of you will remember question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. Very fitting to close our time today. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is He who has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for creating us and for redeeming us out of death and into new life. Grow us, we pray, so that we would better reflect your image as we live in this fallen world, waiting for and looking forward to the return of Jesus with all that that will bring. Help us to know you better Love you and the people around us more and bring you glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.